Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 42. Listen for God's word for us. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Henry Thompson, and I am a pastor here at the downtown campus. And I'm so thankful to have the opportunity to preach the word of God to you this morning. And I just want to give y'all a little heads up before I begin. Um, This month is Black History Month, right? I don't know if you knew that, but it is. And um, in black churches, pastors sometimes tend to do a Black History Month sermon where they talk about black historical figures. So if you notice, a lot of my illustrations include black historical figures. That's intentional, so um, do not be alarmed. (laughs) Uh, But let us pray before we begin. Father, uh, I thank you for your grace, Lord. I thank you for your mercy. Uh, I pray that you would fill this place with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would hide me at the foot of your cross, Lord. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Why do we have a special month focused on celebrating black history? This was the question I always got asked growing up in Northeast Indiana. And a part of me wanted to say, don't worry about it. Just let us have our month, you know? Like, don't hate on us. Just let us celebrate what we need to celebrate, right? But after I graduated from high school and started attending Indiana University, 
I learned about the origins of Black History Month. Through an African-American history course I took at IU, I learned about a man by the name of Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Now, Dr. Woodson was born in 1875 and went on to become the second African-American to receive his PhD from Harvard University. And after serving at Howard University as a dean and professor, he noticed a problem that he wanted to address in our society. He saw that the history of African Americans was being overlooked or misrepresented in American history books and in classes across our country. He saw that even many African American colleges and public schools did not teach their students black history. So he decided to form a countercultural community to address this problem. Dr. Woodson, in collaboration with other black scholars, started the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. And in 1926, Dr. Woodson started something called Black History Week. And you know, I wish they would have had an iPhone back then because, you know, this photo is kind of hard to see, but. And he picked February to celebrate Black History Week because President Abraham Lincoln and the great black abolitionist who fought against slavery, Frederick Douglass, were both born during that month. In the 1970s, Black History Week evolved into Black History Month and became na nationally recognized by our federal government. Now, Dr. Carter G. Woodson is known as the father of Black History and Black History Month because he formed a countercultural community with different habits than the broader society. See, he pulled together followers to teach them the habits of preserving and accurately highlighting the contributions of black people in our society. And this countercultural community that he formed has impacted our broader society, even though many people do not know his name. Through this countercultural community, he helped our country begin to stop overlooking the contributions of African-American people to the history of the United States. And in our text this morning, we are going to see that like Carter G. Woodson, Jesus is forming a countercultural community of followers to impact the world. Through our passage, we're going to see that Jesus is creating a community different from any community in the world. Now, if you are new with us, we have been in a series called Rediscovering Jesus. And through this series, we are seeking to uncover the real Jesus and his message of good news to the world. And we need Jesus and his message because we live in a society and culture filled with anxiety, division, murder, abuse, and strife. We live in a broken culture, and we see this every day we turn on the news. We see this brokenness at our work and in our family. But this morning, Jesus shows us how we can go about addressing the brokenness as a community. In our text, we're going to see how we can go about being a light in our broken society. We're going to see that Jesus is calling us to be a countercultural community. See, Jesus wants his followers to be different and set apart from the community around them so that we can be a light in our culture. And in our text, we're going to see three practices that Jesus wants us to embody as a community. We're going to see that Jesus is calling us to love widely, 
give sacrificially, and walk humbly. Jesus wants our community to love widely, give sacrificially, and walk humbly. These are the practices that Jesus is calling us to as a community through our passage this morning. And the first thing we see in our text this morning is that Jesus is calling us to love widely. See, Jesus doesn't want us to just love the people we like. He wants us to love the people that are hard for us to love. We see this in our text. Now let's look back at our passage this morning in Luke 6, starting in verse 27. These verses read, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now in this passage, Jesus is preaching a sermon to his Jewish followers. And he calls them to do something pretty unconventional in verse 27. He commands them to love their enemy. And this would have been odd to the original Jewish hearers because they were under Roman oppression. But Jesus commands them to love the people they don't like, even the Romans. And he doesn't call them to have a passive love, but an active love. He goes on to command them to do good to the people that hate them. Then he commands them to speak words of blessings to those that curse them. Then he commands them to pray for the people that mistreat them in their cultural context. In the first two verses of our text, Jesus gives four imperatives to his followers. And these are the first imperative commands in the book of Luke from Jesus. Jesus is calling his followers to the countercultural practice of loving their enemy. And in verse 29, he uses two illustrations to further make his point. The first illustration is someone who gets slapped in the cheek, turning the other cheek to the person that slapped them. Now, Jesus is not telling people to stay in an abusive relationship through this verse. Jesus doesn't want that for any person. But slapping someone in the cheek during this time was a public way to reject or, or insult a person. Thus, through this illustration, Jesus is calling his followers to continue to love those who insult and reject them. Now, the second illustration Jesus uses is someone who has their tunic or coat taken, being willing to give that person their shirt as well, or their cloak. Jesus is basically using this illustration to command his followers to be generous to those that take advantage of them. See, Jesus wants his followers to show a generous love toward their enemies. This is why Jesus commands his followers to do unto others as you would have them do to you in verse 31 of our text. Jesus wants his people to actively treat people how they would like to be treated. And this is what Jesus wants us to do as a community. 
He wants us to love widely. He wants us to show love to every person, including our enemies or the people we don't like by treating them how we would like to be treated. And this teaching from Jesus is unique to the Christian faith. No faith calls people to love their enemies as actively and clearly as Jesus does here in this text. And it doesn't make sense, right? But this is what Jesus calls his community of followers to do. He wants us to love widely by loving everyone, including the people we struggle to love. Now, when I think of a person, a Christian, who embodied this ethic in an incredible way, I think of a person named John Perkins. Now, Perkins was born in 1930 in Mississippi. He grew up in poverty, and when he was seven months old, his mother passed away from malnutrition. Thus, his grandmother and extended family raised him. And when he was around the age of 18, he moved to California at the urging of his family because his brother Clyde, who was awarded a Purple Heart in World War II, was wrongly murdered by an officer in Mississippi. In light of this tragedy, John promised that he would never return to Calif- that he would never return from California. But during his time in California, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And after three years of being discipled in California, he decided to move back to Mississippi to share the good news of Jesus with people from his community. And while he was in Mississippi, His faith led him to join the fight for civil rights for African Americans. His faith led him to seek both the spiritual and economic development of his community. In 1970, Perkins led an economic boycott and protest of a new shopping center in Mississippi because this shopping center refused to hire black people, even though many of the shoppers were African Americans. Due to his role in this protest, he was eventually arrested and he was severely, severely beaten by police officers in prison. After he was released, he sought justice, but none of the police officers that wrongly beat him were held accountable for their corrupt actions. And this experience understandably tempted him to hate the white people in Mississippi that oppressed and marginalized the black community because he saw how the racial hatred in his community devastated his people. But by God's grace, Perkins followed God's call to love your enemy, even when it felt impossible. And in his book, he writes, the spirit of God kept working on me and in me until I could say with Jesus, I forgive them too. I promised him that I would return good for evil not evil for evil, and he gave me the love I knew I would need to fulfill his command to me of love your enemy. Jesus washed my hatred away and replaced it with the love for white people in rural Mississippi. Through God's supernatural power, Perkins followed God's command to love his enemy. Despite the persecution and racial hatred that he faced, he chose to do good to those who mistreated him while fighting injustice. Even though it was hard, he followed God's command to love widely. And this is what God is calling us to do as his followers. He wants us to love widely by loving our enemies. And I know some of you may think, I don't really have enemies. 
We try to do the nice, passive-aggressive Midwestern thing and pretend like we don't have a problem with anyone. But we all have people in our lives we struggle to love. Amen? Amen. It may be a boss or co-worker. It may be someone in your family, an ex-romantic partner, an in-law, or even someone in this church. And given our political polarization right now in our country, I guarantee there's a political figure on the left or right that you probably don't like right now. See, we all have people or groups that we struggle to actively love in our lives. And in our text, God is calling us to love those people we struggle to love by praying for them, doing good to them, and speaking words of blessing over them. Now, I'm going to be real with you this morning. I feel challenged by this call from Jesus. This doesn't come naturally to me. I am a six on the Enneagram, which I don't know if you follow the Enneagram, but that's the loyalist. See, I'm a loyal person. If a a person is trustworthy, I will be loyal to them to the end. But if people don't have my back or mistreat me, I can be loyal to a grudge too. (laughs) I'm just being real with y'all this morning. I don't like loving or doing good to people that I feel mistreat me. But God calls us to love the people that mistreat us. He wants you to love your mean boss. He wants you to to love your difficult family member. He wants you to love your rude neighbor. He wants you to love that person that you feel that it's impossible for you to love them. See, God wants us to engage in the practice of loving widely as his followers. This is the first truth our text points us to this morning. Now, this is not the only practice Jesus calls us to through this passage. On top of the call to love widely, Jesus calls us to give sacrificially. See, Jesus wants us to give to other people around us without expecting anything in return. He wants us to love others through our actions without expecting anything back. Now, let's look back at verse 32 of our passage this morning. It reads, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. In these verses, Jesus tells his followers that if they only love the people that love them, then they are just like sinners. And in this context, when Jesus uses the word sinner, he is referring to people outside the community of followers. Then Jesus goes on to tell them that if they do good only to the the people that do good to them, then they are like people that don't follow him. Then he says, if you only lend money to those who pay you back, then you're basically like a bank. You like everybody else. But Jesus doesn't want his followers to be like everyone else. He wants them to be a countercultural community different than the people who don't follow him. 
So in verse 35, Jesus commands his followers to do good, love, and lend to others, including enemies without expecting anything from them. Jesus basically commands his people to give to others without expecting anything in return. He calls them to give sacrificially to others without trying to get something back for themselves. After giving them this command, Jesus tells them that if they do this, God will bless them. Now, Jesus is not telling them to do this to get an award, but he wants his followers to know that they can give expecting nothing in return and trust in their heavenly father to provide for them. And he claims when they give to others expecting nothing, they are acting like children of God. Because God shows kindness to wicked and ungrateful people that rebel against him. God shows mercy to people that don't deserve it all the time, including us. Amen? He commands them to give to those who don't deserve it, expecting nothing in return. And this is what God wants from us. He wants us to give sacrificially of our time and resources to others without trying to get something back. Now, when I think of a person that embodied this call to giving sacrificially without expecting anything in return, there's a civil rights activist that comes to mind named Ella Baker. She was born in 1903, and her grandparents were former slaves. And in 1927, Baker graduated from Shaw University, a historically black university, as a valedictorian. And after graduating, she went on to play an influential role in three of the most important organizations in the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Baker served as a director and local president for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, and she was the lead organizer of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Then she went on to start another influential civil rights organization called the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This organization gave black college students an opportunity to play an important role in the civil rights movement. Now, a few years ago, Julie Scalfo wrote an article in Time Magazine about Ella Baker. And in this article, she writes, there is a lesser known civil rights figure without whom Dr. King's work and nothing less than the entire civil rights movement of the 1960s may not have succeeded and whose absence from the iconography of American history is a disservice to all citizens, Ella J. Baker. Then Julie goes on to write, so if Ella Baker was so important, why isn't her name as well known to Americans as Dr. King's or Rosa Parks, for that matter? For starters, Baker was never interested in the spotlight and devoted no effort whatsoever to seeking recognition. Instead, like all the world's greatest teachers and editors, she enjoyed the pleasure of watching others reach their own potential. Now, I love this quotation from this Time Magazine article. Because first, this article acknowledges the significant role that Ella Baker played in the civil rights movement. She did so much strategizing, organizing, and training that was pivotal to the civil rights movement through her work. 
And I also love this quotation because it highlights the reality that she did not give her time, energy, resources, and intellect to get any recognition. She sought and fought for the rights of marginalized men and women expecting nothing in return. She didn't sacrifice her energy and effort to get accolades or recognition. Like this Time Magazine article highlights, she gave sacrificially without expecting anything in return. And in a higher and holier way, this is what Jesus is calling us to through this text. He wants us to give our time, energy, and resources to others who can't repay us back. He wants us to give to even those we don't like without expecting anything in return. And to be honest, this call from Jesus doesn't make sense in our culture. We live in a consumeristic society. When we give something, we expect something back. When we give, we want to get back. This is why we invest in markets. Even charitable organizations cite studies that show how giving and generosity help us feel better in order to motivate us to give. And it's true, recent academic research shows that giving indeed does benefit our mental and physical health, but we shouldn't need academic research to motivate us to give because Jesus commands us to do this here in our text. And we should trust that what he calls us to do is ultimately for our good. Thus, we should give sacrificially to those around us. See, Jesus wants us to give to one another, our family and the people in our city without respecting, expecting anything in return. In light of this truth, who is someone in your life or in our city right now that you can give to who cannot pay you back? Maybe you could give a word of encouragement to that boss or coworker that only criticizes you. Maybe you could meet the need of a family member or friend that you know can't pay you back. Maybe you could mentor youth in our city. Or maybe you could even give more of your time and financial resources to serve our church. I threw that in for Gabe. <laughs> See, just joking. See, Jesus calls us to give sacrificially without expecting anything back. Because this is what he does for sinful people like us. We don't deserve blessing from God or his mercy, but he gives it to us anyway. And as a community, Jesus wants us to reflect that same sacrificial giving to those around us, even those we don't like. This is the truth that our text points us to this morning. Now, as we move back to our text, we see that Jesus doesn't just call us as a community to love widely and give sacrificially. In addition, we see that Jesus calls us to walk humbly. Jesus wants his followers to show humility in the way we relate to others. Thus, he calls his community to not look down on others around them, but to live a life of forgiveness. Let's look back at verse 37. It reads, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. 
Now, in these verses, Jesus commands his disciples to first not judge other people. He's basically is telling them not to look down on people around them with a prideful and judgmental attitude of superiority. And he tells them if they follow this command that they will not be judged by God. Then Jesus tells them to not condemn or tear down the people around them. He basically tells his followers, I don't want you to pronounce the final verdict of guilt over another person and believe I can't redeem them. And Jesus states that if you follow this command, then they won't face condemnation from God. Then verse 37 ends with Jesus commanding his disciples to forgive. See, Jesus didn't want his disciples pridefully holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts. So he commands them to forgive and promises that if they follow this command, they will be forgiven. Now, Jesus is not commanding his followers to not judge or condemn in order to gain acceptance. And he's not commanding them to forgive in order to get forgiveness. Instead, when we don't pass judgment or condemn others, we show that we truly have experienced the grace of God and been humbled by God's grace on our life. See, when we show forgiveness to others, we show that we are humbly aware of our own need for forgiveness. And when we show that, we have, we show that we've been forgiven by God through how we forgive others. See, Jesus calls his followers to abstain from judging and condemning and to forgive because that's what God has done toward us. This truth should cause us to walk humbly and to not look down on other people with a superior attitude. And when we follow these three commands, we're able to follow Jesus's command in verse 38 to give to others openly when they don't deserve it. Because God gives good gifts to us even though we are undeserving. And at the end of verse 38, Jesus uses an agricultural grain metaphor to show that if we follow these commands, he will bless us with more than we ever sacrificed in following these commands. After this metaphor, Jesus ends verse 38 by communicating the truth that the measure we use to judge others will be used against us. This truth should motivate us to walk humbly and not judge and condemn other people. And it should lead us to forgive as God has graciously forgiven us. Now go with me here a second. I live off of 39th and Main, near the Westport area in KCMO. So almost every day I drive down Main Street. And if you ever drive on Main Street, you will notice that there are not a lot of left turn lanes at many of the lights. <laughs> so from 7 to 9 a.m. and from 4 to 6 p.m. Monday through Friday, people cannot do a left turn at certain lights on Main Street, right? They have prominent signs on every light to remind people not to do a left turn. But despite these prominent signs, people still regularly decide to be selfish and do a left turn during rush hour. And it makes me so upset. When a person does a left turn during rush hour, I condemn and judge them. <laughs> they are selfish people and they are everything wrong with our society, right? <laughs> That's how I feel. 
that's how I feel when people hold me up at a light during rush hour because they want to break the law and do a left turn. But I'm going to be real with you all this morning. A few weeks ago, I broke the rules <laughs> and did a left turn on Main during rush hour too. But I had somewhere I had to get to <laughs> and I didn't have time. And even though I get mad when people do a left turn during rush hour, I still did it and I may do it again. <laughs> and through this experience, I remember that I can judge and condemn people for the same things that I do. I can judge people for doing certain things, but turn around and do the same thing in essence. But I convince myself that when I do it, it's different. And when I do this, I'm walking in pride and not humility. And we can do this to each other. One pastor once said, we all have the same sin disease, but we judge and look down on each other because we have different symptoms. Our symptoms may be heterosexual lust, so we think that we can look down on the person struggling with same-sex attraction. Or our symptoms may be gossip, so we think we can look down on the person struggling with lying. Our symptom may be greed and work, so we think we can look down on the person that struggles with laziness. Our symptom may be unforgiveness, so we think we can look down on the person that God is calling us to forgive who messed up. See, when we refuse to forgive or judge others, we are saying we would never do what they did. And when we do this, we are walking in pride. And this prideful practice of judging, condemning, and not forgiving deeply impacts our politics in this country right now. We can condemn a person for not fighting against racial justice while ignoring the importance of, a pr of protecting life in the womb. Or we can condemn people for not being pro-life while ignoring the denigration of life and people at our southern border. Or we can condemn people for not caring about the opioid addiction in rural communities while ignoring the unjust war on drugs that led to the mass incarceration of African Americans. See, our political discourse between left and right is devolving right now because we are walking in pride. We are judging, condemning, and not forgiving. But Jesus is calling us to walk in humility, not pride. Now, I'm not saying we can never correct another person or confront real injustice, but when we remember our brokenness and need for forgiveness, we can correct from a place of compassion and not condemnation. When we remember God's grace in our life, we can love instead of judging. And we can receive correction ourselves. And when we remember God's incredible forgiveness toward us, we can forgive instead of feuding with people and holding grudges. This is what Jesus is calling us to through this text. He wants us to walk humbly with those around us by giving and forgiving like God does to us. Now, when I, I think of a Christian that modeled this call to walk humbly, I think of a woman by the name of Mary McLeod Bethune. She was born in 1875 to parents who were formerly enslaved. And she went on to attend Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And she wanted to go overseas to be a missionary in Africa. But she never received this opportunity because no church would sponsor her as a black woman. But she didn't let this deter her from ministering to people. 
1904, she started a school in Florida for educating black girls. And she started out with five students, but within a few years, she drew the school to over 250 students. Rule one of sermon preaching, don't put people in your sermon that make you cry. <laughs> this all-girls school eventually combined with an all-boys school and evolved into an historically black college that exists now called Bethune-Cookman College. And on top of her work in education, Bethune fought for women's rights and the civil rights of African Americans. She started an organization called the National Council of Black Women. And under Franklin D. Roosevelt, she became the first African-American woman to head a division of the federal government, where she focused on creating employment opportunities for African-American youth nationally. And she served as the vice president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP. Due to her work, Mary was well aware of the injustices, racism, and sexism in American society, but she walked humbly and forgave those who opposed her work for women and African Americans. Toward the end of her life, she wrote an article called Last Will and Testament to Her People in, Ag in Ebony Magazine as her last words. In this article, she wrote, I leave you love. Love builds. It is positive and helpful. It is more beneficial than hate. Injuries quickly forgotten, quickly pass away. Personally, personally and racially, our enemies must be forgiven. Even though Mary encountered a great deal of racial hatred and sexism, she chose to humbly forgive and instructed others to do the same. She could have condemned and judged, but she chose to walk in humility by loving. She could have been bitter, but she forgave both personal and systemic wrongs. And she shows that a person can fight injustice while humbly forgiving our enemies or the people that hurt us. See, Mary McLeod Bethune walked in humility, and this is what Jesus calls us to as his followers. I'm going to be transparent here. God has been tearing me up with this text this week. Partially is why I'm crying, probably. Because there are people in my life right now that I haven't wanted to show forgiveness toward. See, there are a couple people in my life that I've been condemning and judging instead of loving. I've been walking in pride and telling myself I would never do what they did to me. But through this text, the Lord has shown me that I need to take steps toward those people to forgive and reconcile. He has been showing me I need to stop judging and start loving. And I want to ask you this morning, is there anyone in your life who you need to forgive? Or is there anyone you've been condemning and judging that you need to start loving? See, Jesus, see, Jesus calls us to walk humbly by forgiving one another and our enemies. And this is hard, right? This call from Jesus to love our enemies, give sacrificially, and forgive without judging is impossible to do in our own strength. 
But what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't just call us to walk humbly, give sacrificially, and love widely. He embodied these things toward us and gave us the power to do the same. Jesus loved widely. We were all his enemies due to our sin and rebellion against God. But Jesus, the God-man, chose to take on flesh to love us by saving us from an eternity apart from him in hell. Jesus sacrificially gave his life by dying on the cross to cover over our sin and rebellion against God. We, didn't, we couldn't give Jesus anything. As part of our Trinitarian God, he had all he needed, but he died for us on the cross of Calvary and re resurrected from the grave to restore our broken relationship with God. And Jesus had every reason to judge and condemn us. He was perfect and sinless. But he chose to walk humbly by showing mercy toward us and forgiving us. Jesus perfectly embodied these calls he gives to love widely, give sacrificially, and walk humbly. And now through Jesus, we can embody these practices in our community and city. See, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, we can be the countercultural community that Jesus is calling us to be in our city today. Amen? Amen? Let us pray. Father, uh, thank you for this, uh, for your grace toward us, Lord. Thank you that you don't treat us according to our sins, nor pay us according to our iniquities, but as far as the east is from the west, so far do you cast our sin from us, Lord. And we pray that you would give us the grace to do the same to those toward us and to love those that are difficult for us to love, Lord. Thank you for your grace, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.